0: Hello, welcome again to Sports a Not Going through all the week's sports news. Coming up, a very special guest: the FIFA vice president, CONCACAF president, Victor Montoliani. But so much of the global sporting agenda has been dominated by the fallout and response to tragic events in the world. There was the massacre launched from Gaza on Israel, and the escalation of the Israel-Hamas war. There were also the deaths of two Sweden fans in Brussels who were shot dead in what's being called a terror attack ahead of the Belgium-Sweden men's Euros qualifier. Joining me, Rob Harris from Sky News as ever, Tarek Panja from the New York Times and Martin Ziegler from the Times and has certainly been a couple of weeks where the geopolitics and security of the world has meshed into how sports is reported.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are some, uh, obviously, immediate consequences for for football, aren't there? I mean, the UEFA have basically left the Sweden-Belgium match at, at a one-all draw after it was abandoned at half-time. Um, Israel um, matches have been disturbed because of after the Hamas attacks and the Palestine national team looks like their matches are going to be affected so there are the direct football things but this has kind of spilled over hasn't it into not just the effects on football but but a sort of broader debate even some might even say culture war about um about how football should react.
2: Utterly a really horrific week um and you say you know obviously this pod is about sports and sports news and the ramifications obviously much bigger but yeah the issues that we've seen rob have have been very specific to, to football and and in the UK um over the last week where we're based uh it, it's 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 been a really difficult week
0: in terms of i guess tone in many ways as well right and obviously football having to grapple with very complex issues, particularly with Israel, Hamas. It does link to a decades-old conflict and long-standing enmities, but sparked in this instance by the horrific Hamas attacks, the murder, the rape, the torture, kidnapping of those in Israel, 1,400 people killed, then a whole discussion over what is a proportional response from Israel to they would see it protect their security, which leads to then civilian deaths in Gaza as well. Obviously, this is now an ongoing situation in sporting terms. We know of former footballers, basketball players who've been killed on the Israeli side. We, less detail from the Palestinian side, which does immediately give a sporting issue about how sport does respond and for a period, there was the silence, obviously we didn't hear from the UEFA and FIFA for a week in particular after the Hamas attacks the Premier League silent on the weekend after it and I suppose we look at it from an English perspective in particular because there's a lot of mourning at matches for various instances around the world and in particular this singular focus on the Wembley arch which might have been heard about and it has been lit in the last few years after Attacks in various countries lit up with the Turkish flag, the French flag, the Belgian flag after attacks there, and with the Ukrainian flag after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which somehow became a sort of national symbol of sort of solidarity with these countries, but perhaps sets and set themselves up for more complex situations.
1: Yeah, I mean they found themselves um, in a situation where they uh, they, they FA wanted to reflect. Um, so I sort of pay tribute to all victims, on all to innocent victims in Israel and innocent victims in Palestine, and then it's you know how do you do that? And basically, I think their previous record of writing up the arch got themselves into um, trouble, and not surprisingly, I think they've now taken the decision that for the future they're going to light up the arch far less often than they have done in the past and be probably be much more football-related. For example, like when when Pelé died and they used it to mark that. I think this sort of using it for social or quasi-political or anything else, I think that's going to be a thing of the past from now on.
2: The The level of polarisation as well, especially with social media being what it is today and the search for immediate comments on, on, on all these sides it, it causes it has caused certainly this past week um you know a real mess in terms of the response the tone of the response um language from various bodies whether sporting bodies public bodies the media um this is almost a moment for reflection here shame it's taken
0: the, the horrors
2: of of what we saw two weeks ago with that hamas terrorist attack and and then now these civilian deaths in the, in the, I guess, almost you know north of a thousand and, and, and more, probably, by the time um, people are listening to this.
0: And what probably brought this into sharper focus was what happened in February 2022 after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And the Premier League themselves adopted the Ukrainian flag with football stands together at matches. They even announced in their statement that their display of solidarity would be linked to those by the UK government. So that was very much aligning themselves with this cause and I can't remember if I sent on the podcast at the time I was certainly asking around football at the time well what would happen with a more complex situation at the time we were talking quite a bit about China and Taiwan what what would happen with the Chinese invasion of Taiwan would the Premier League adopt the Taiwanese flag and it made me question why football when adopting these moments that seem unifying at the time don't think of the sort of the the worst-case scenario, the most difficult scenario to maintain consistency down the line. Short-term
2: and and opportunistic, I guess, when you're pushing at an open door, Rob, and the the questions you would have asked at the time are perfectly valid, and and, and here we are um, today. The the Ukraine and and, and Russia war, um, I think that's a classic example. Um, It was so binary, and they saw it as a very, very easy um, sorry to use a sporting analogy, easy win here, and and now look what's happened.
1: I actually think it goes back even further to this sort of decision to get involved with the whole, you know, Premier League and English clubs wearing poppies on the shirts, and you know, a big fight with FIFA to be allowed to do so. I mean, what was the point of that? That that was just, I think, responding to pressure from certain sections of the media. But just don't get involved in things like that. I, I think, in the first place. And they, that almost, in a way, set English football down a particular road.
2: Uh, I'm not going to name the, the media organisations, but the idea of being terrified of, of a couple of newspaper front pages, um, it just shows a lack of strength and conviction of, of, of the leaders. You know, wh- why get so um, sort of frazzled by a couple of, um, you know, attention-seeking headlines in a way? Just, just have, a, have a strategy. You know these organisations are supposed to be people by smart, serious people who know what they're doing. And to blow in the wind with every every kind of screaming headline, it it, it sets you down um, a, a road that that ends up in in the situation we're in today.
0: Yes, and we you know saw that with FIFA and UEFA as well. So UEFA said absolutely nothing um, in the immediate week after the attacks. Neither did FIFA. Uh, we did see letters that both Alexander Sheffer and Fantino and Fantino sent to the FAs in both Israel and um, Palestinian territories too. And they did offer condolences, but they're very caveated and cautious in their regard. And probably with FIFA, there's more of a spotlight, although Sheffrin had been to Israel a few weeks earlier because he'd been to meet both the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, and the President Herzog, as well as the FA. Jean Fantino, and we, I'm sure we've questioned it on here before, went to the White House in 2020 to the signing ceremony of the Abram Accords? Was it the UAE, Bahrain and Israel? And there were questions at the time, you know, why was he at such a quite a political event what was football's role to do that what was his necessity to go there in the midst of the pandemic?
2: Infantino at the time let's look into the context of that he had developed a very very close relationship with um the Donald Trump White House particularly Jared Kushner who was at the center of this Infantino seemed to like being around the orbit of 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 these people and and um and and at the time um uh, with the UAE and Gulf leadership, it kind of fitted into his almost lifestyle and in this this profile um, to the point where he was at this this um, quite significant, very significant um, signing of the Abraham Accords, this peace accord, if you want, a uh, recognition for the first time of Israel by the United Arab Emirates and a, a huge deal and and a couple of other countries. Um, but it wasn't a football event. He didn't need to be there. But he made sure that we knew he was there. Now, look, Rob, let me ask you, in terms of Infantino, that was all known, well known and well publicised. Where, When it's sensitive, where does he tend to put these statements out? Is it as well known? Is it as well publicised?
0: Well, the only reason we actually saw his letter to the Israeli FA is because I got sent it from there. That was the first word after contacting FIFA media every day or all, all week to ask what their position was. And They just had nothing, and eventually I got the letter and just posted it. Then a few hours later, he posted on his Instagram, Gianni Infantino, a couple of very tiny versions of his letter to the Israeli and Palestinian FAs, which you couldn't barely read, and it was posted on Instagram stories, which for those less familiar, disappear after 24 hours. So they weren't sent out on a press release. They weren't put on the FIFA media Twitter or X account. They weren't put on the main FIFA account. They weren't put on the FIFA website, which you'd think this is pretty notable to post there particularly as not just for media other football associations around the world might want to take some sort of guidance and know what the FIFA leadership position is perhaps they might follow or they might take a sort of different path from that I mean what Infantino actually wrote was football could play a small part in potentially delivering peace so he was putting football as having a role in somehow ending this very long-running uh, Bitter conflict and uh, enmities.
1: You, know, you know, writing a letter to the Israeli FA is the right way to go, but I do I don't quite understand why that's not sort of released publicly. But this thing about football being you know involved in in in, in delivering peace. It, I mean, Seth Blatter, you probably remember this. This was his sort of grand idea that he was going to bring peace to the Middle East and he was going to get the Nobel Peace Prize, and he spoke about it quite often, didn't he? But I mean, his, all, his efforts, which from the moment he became president in 1998, um, he brought Palestine into, into FIFA then. Um, and he, you know, is one of his his recurring themes, but it was a complete failure.
2: It was um, Kjetil Sim, a Norwegian football executive who brought Blatter, the Nobel Committee no less, into FIFA House with the um, now short-lived Handshake for Peace sponsored by the Nobel the people who give out the Nobel Prize. Um, yeah, unfortunately for, for Blatter, the, the major
0: scandal that took out him and most of the FIFA leadership at the time ended uh, those hopes. Bringing it back to the current situation, um, so Infantino's letter referenced his call for an immediate end to hostilities and relief to end the suffering of both the people from Israel and Palestine. Again, we had the Premier League and FA statements sort of providing what some saw as an equivalence when on the Israeli side certainly it was the worst attack a single day against Jewish people since the Holocaust then obviously Palestinian deaths too but very complex situation with the fact Gaza being run by the Hamas administration which countries like the UK and the US do see as a terror group so you can understand why it is very complex to wade into this. Uh, As far as I could gather, the Romanian FA were the, one of the only football associations, certainly the only statement I saw that particularly said their silence was to mark the acts of terrorism against Israel, whereas generally all round, it was a sort of, joint position of the victims from Israel um, and, and Gaza as well. It's
2: not only the FAs. The players, too, have found themselves in in, in in awkward positions and in difficult positions and in controversial positions. We've seen players being suspended by their teams for for pro-Palestinian messages, some that you, you, you could say of, uh, are cr- crossing the line as far as the FA are concerned. You, you have some examples of, of those. And then there was also um, a comment, um, a very incendiary comment from the French Interior Minister Darmenan this week about Karim Benzema who's currently playing in Saudi Arabia, saying that, you know, I'll paraphrase him a bit, that everyone knows that Benzema is a supporter of the Muslim Brotherhood. Now the Muslim Brotherhood is a prescribed organization in Saudi Arabia where Karim Benzema is currently playing. So I uh, didn't see any justification or backing for, for, for those comments.
0: So, those players who were suspended, Yusuf Atal at Nice, allegedly for sharing a video from a Palestinian preacher about a dark day for Jewish people, which was seen as anti Semitic. And at Mainz, they suspended Anwar el Ghazi for comments that they deemed unacceptable. He did share comments that included the phrase from the river to the sea, which is viewed particularly by the UK government as anti Semitic and about the destruction of. Israel. So those particular cases, and you know, there've obviously been more um, Palestinian statements, pro-Palestinian statements that haven't had any action. So perhaps some seen as a clampdown on supporting the Palestinian cause. But it seems that these are very specific cases. And you know, we've seen many players just sharing the Palestinian flag and various messages of sort of solidarity. Also, the only Israeli player in the Premier League, Manuel Solomon at Tottenham, he's been posting. Quite strident messages against Hamas and in support of his country.
1: Kind of struck me that if you think back a year, about the, in Qatar, the World Cup, there was a there were really, really a sort of open demonstrations pro Palestinian support. So, I suppose some of the players who might have been involved in theirs, they, they think that you know they're, they're looking back over, over what's happened over decades. And um, but the immediate feeling that, that lots of people feel is the revulsion at what happened over this sort of horrific attack on that Saturday. So it's just one of these things which polarises people um, and football has been stuck in the middle.
0: Yeah, particularly then when we had that attack on the Sweden fans in Brussels, ahead of the European Championship qualifier. So then football was wondering how does it mark those deaths having spent the week in such a complex situation uh, with Israel Hamas. And we eventually did get a UEFA statement which said that they would be marking the deaths and what they said in their statement was that it would be in memory of the two victims of yesterday's terror attack in Brussels. They then put a later statement out a few hours later saying that they would have a moment of silence at games in memory of all members of the European football family killed in recent days in Europe and Israel. I know certainly the English Football Association that raised alarm bells because of course Israel is in European football terms which then led at England's game against Italy, to then put in their own message on the big screen, changing it to make clear that it was in memory of all members of the European football family killed in recent days from UEFA member nations, Israel and Sweden. And they put the UEFA logos on that message. So certainly that shows the complexity. And this all came when UEFA had just been dealing with the Russia situation. So in the previous pod, we talked about how UEFA decided to readmit. Some Russian teams, the under 17s teams, are ending the blanket ban in place since the start of the Ukraine war. We mentioned about the backlash with certainly the English FA, the some of the Baltic FAs, Swedish FA, and the like, all protesting against UEFA's decision to readmit Russian teams. And then UEFA performed a U turn.
1: I think when we talked about it before, we did question how they were going to actually. Technically, get them into the draws. If nobody was going to play, they weren't going to be able to go to Sweden. So you could say it was probably quite um, predictable. <laughs> but no, nevertheless, embarrassing for UEFA to have to do that U-turn. Not,
2: not just embarrassing, it's, it's cost um, um, uh, uh, the guy from Sweden, Carl Erik Nielsen, uh, his, his role at the top of Swedish sport, hasn't it? He was forced to resign after being the first speaker after Sheffren in that UEFA board meeting to back this um this plan
0: over his contradictory views given his position as chair of the swedish sports coalition
2: who who wouldn't who wouldn't allow them to be there and it's hugely embarrassing and it's a complete own goal and they haven't actually got these games played what why 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 was this introduced? What a what a what a blunder!
1: Yeah, it was a mistake. I, I blame Rob Harris for uh, Carl Eric Nielsen's resignation because he was the person who pointed out publicly the fact he'd voted in in the opposition to his uh, national association's position. We take the
0: broader view, perhaps you can either look at this as democracy in action in UEFA. They proposed something, they voted on something. There was a backlash, boycott calls, and UEFA had to reconsider it, and they reverse the decision, or it shows they should have consulted more widely first to actually get a real sense of the situation. And it would point to the fact they, by dropping it on this meeting, it took too many people by surprise who were opposed and weren't going to move their position.
2: Carl Eric, not the only only um, um, FA president in trouble over this. Jesper Muller, his close friend and Danish FA president, who also seemed to give this his backing in, in, in the board, was forced to appear on, on live Danish television, I think, to to kind of apologise for this and to make the, the position clear.
0: Well, that Russia decision all about leadership, how much you consult and how you land a decision. A lot of football focus at the start of the pod, but certainly the International Olympic Committee has been meeting in the last week in Mumbai, Johnny Fatina amongst the IC members there, but it's all been about the person at the top Thomas Bach and now this perhaps doesn't get as much global attention it's not the talk of sports fans there's not as much familiarity perhaps with Thomas Bach but a really consequential moment did happen there so Thomas Bach's term is due to end as IEC president in 2025 but is he trying to stay on?
1: Well he he would probably claim he's he's not but several IEC members stepped up and urged him uh, to Despite to change effectively would require the IOC to change its statutes um, to allow him to uh, to stay on for, for another four years. Um, interestingly, uh, inside the game, point picked, found a, a good video of Thomas Bach talking in twenty fifteen about FIFA and urging them to bring in term limits um, as the IOC had done in two thousand and one. So it would be you'd say it's slightly hypocritical um if if he bowed to pressure from the members and stayed on for another four years.
2: Yeah, he was shocked shocked uh, when when those members from the floor stunned him by saying that maybe they should study him staying on beyond the, the the mandate. And just for a second let's let's think about why that mandate was brought in. It was brought in in, in I think in the late 90s after the Salt Lake City bribery scandal. Um, it was one of the measures that were, was was brought in to prevent leaders from staying so long, um, thus creating cronyism, bad governance, and and risk of corruption. And here we are backsliding. And it's not just Thomas Bach. We've we we we've seen this at FIFA. Gianni Infantino will probably stay on. Um, there's a mechanism for him to stay on beyond beyond the term limits uh, at FIFA. And same um, at UEFA as well. Should Alexander Sheffrin want to stay on beyond beyond his term limits, the point of these term limits are are really important. It is to to bring new blood and to stop um, a, a kind of a ossification, to stop people just staying in place and that power really um, residing at the top of these organisations. And you know what
0: happens when it does? Power too hard to give up. And also, how many members would openly oppose you staying on? when so much of their power and committee roles obviously depend on loyalty to the top
1: yeah it's almost impossible to unseat an incumbent isn't it So that that's that's one of the issues but it did it did uh, it was noticeable that one of the people who urged thomas back to stay was uh, louis oviedo from the dominican republic who um just coincidentally was, uh, he, he was allowed to stay on um, until the end of 2027 as IC member despite the fact that he is going to be over the age limit of 70 at the end of this year. So um, it, uh, maybe, maybe he was uh, speaking out in the hope that he would get some um, favorable treatment in term of terms of his own extension application. Which, uh, which is cronyism.
2: That's, that's the risk, Zig. So, you, you know, you can't have these embedded relationships. It's just, you know, a huge risk. You know, good luck to all those all those people. I'm sure everyone's very ambitious. Uh, but the, the rules are there for a, a reason. And just my, my last point on this, the thing is they can do whatever they want. That's what we have to be clear about. There is nothing above these organisations, right? There's nothing above FIFA, nothing above the IOC to force them to um, you know, stick to their statutes because whenever a problem arises, let's just look at our statutes and make a change, and then we move on. There, there is no outside um, oversight of any of these bodies; they're a law unto themselves.
0: Matters of good governance. Well, who better to discuss some of these issues with about how particularly football is run? then someone who's on the inside, who's on the FIFA Council, is one of the FIFA vice presidents, so he's on the FIFA Bureau. We've had the chance at the Leaders in Sport Conference this week to sit down with Victor Montaliani, the CONCACAF president and FIFA vice president.
3: Welcome back. Thanks, Rob. Great to
4: be here. Uh, Great to be in London this week for leaders and uh, great to see you guys.
0: So, so much has happened since, when was it? march 2022 we spoke to you that was ahead of the 2022 20, qatar world cup now all roads lead to well
4: it's going to be saudi 2034 isn't it well how about our world cup in 26. wow like uh, you've already aged me mate uh, well, uh obviously
3: there's a process there and uh you know um the um obviously they have launched their intention um, I don't know about formally launched it because there is a process there too from a paperwork standpoint. But they've launched their intention. The Asian Confederation has, has backed their bid, uh, as we all know. And let's see what the days to come or weeks to come uh, reveals.
1: What is the the sort of justification or, or the the reason for running this bid process so early? Because, I mean, the, the the only comparable one I can think of is, is when they did the 2022 one for, for Qatar back in In 2009, it seems very, very early.
3: Well, actually, we did it ourselves for 2026. So the process uh, was supposed to be, and I don't know the exact dates, but uh, we, as Canada and U.S. mainly, uh, with my colleague at the time, Mr. Mr. Gulati, we um, pushed FIFA to expedite the process because we were ready to go um they the fifa council saw no merits in not doing it and so we pushed it up a year early to have it voted a voter on it in russia in 2018. this is no different than what we did but nobody actually said anything when we did it so thank you very much for not asking me those questions in 2017 but i see this no different uh in terms of obviously 2030 was decided as we know uh and that um you know And I think with the, now going through what we're going through for 26, the sheer size of this thing now,
2: the more time you have, the way better time you have. For people who don't know how this works, which is most people in the world outside of your orbit, what struck me is the Saudis were within minutes ready with an announcement from the Crown Prince, then the FA, and you mentioned they got the support of the AFC. That came within an hour of this idea that the 2034 were almost like everybody knew what was going to happen. How comes that was the case? Well, you would have to
3: ask them that question, but obviously, uh, there obviously were, were, you know, regardless of when the announcement was coming, I, obviously they were ready to bid, uh, long before, even before that happened. I think they were very clear. They were in it for 2030. Um, and you know, they were also, made it clear to anybody they spoke to that they were in it not only for 2030, they were in it for 34 if they didn't win 2030. So they, they're very clear that this is a very important project for them. And so I think they were ready to hit that button anytime they needed to.
2: The, the other button they seem to have hit is like we're less than two weeks since that announcement was made. And they have announced that they already have signed up 101 of FIFA's 211 members to back them. That's incredibly quick. How do you get that much backing so fast for a World Cup bid? There's not even um, a process yet.
3: Yeah, obviously you have, you know, I mean, you have Asia that has 47 members, Africa that has whatever that is. Um, and so I don't think it's that hard to get
4: to that number. If you have people that believe in your project, especially something we talk about a lot on the pod,
0: probably uh, focus a lot in FIFA is the decision making, and perhaps it can be viewed then as cynical when these deals seem to emerge. It's not the Congress deciding one day on a press release; that decisions effectively made on 2030 and 2034. Is there still a challenge? How these decisions are made, and how the wider world might see them? I think it's a great question.
3: I think, in fact, I think the question should be: Is even this process the right process? I think uh, giving the the, the ultimate uh, decision making to 211 countries who really are not, in, they're obviously vested in the World Cup, but but the whole process and the details that goes along with a bidding process, I think we need to really look at that. I, I understand what happened in the past and then in, in, in at the time was an executive committee, but you know, in the corporate world, shareholders don't get asked to vote on those things. It's the board and the board is voted in by the shareholders. I think we really need to look at it. The the FIFA Men's World Cup is 95% of the revenue generated by FIFA, right? It's it's the biggest asset that pays all the FIFA forward money to all the countries. Uh, The fact that, for instance, the uh, FIFA General Secretary and the FIFA President doesn't have a vote, uh, that would never happen in any corporate environment where the CEO and the chairman of of an organization has absolutely nothing to say about your biggest financial asset. I think if we're really going to look at proper governance, you kind of might want to take a page from the corporate world and see maybe, is there a better, more efficient way? Is there a better strategic way to do it? Because, you know, having, a, a having obviously you have to do your due diligence. It has to be very transparent, regardless who votes, whether it's a body of 2011 211, or it's a body of 37. That always has to be transparent. But your due diligence has to be done. You have to take into a, a account what the st- your staff that does your due diligence says. And also, strategically maybe taking a more long-term view, right? Because, again, it's a big asset. It should be done properly. It needs to be spread geographically. There's different reasons to have the World Cup. Obviously, finances is a big reason, but also from a development standpoint and how you wick that in. Maybe you do it from a shared perspective like we've seen that's going to be happening in the future here. So I think it's maybe it's an appropriate time to relook at how we do it. Because, you know, th- this thing that it, uh, I think the bid process in itself, I mean, we spent a lot of money in our bid process. Do you, that, should that really happen? Should MAs be spending that kind of money in the bid process? Or should it be done more at a, at a level that is, I think, at a better
4: corporate level than how it is now? Those are just, I think, serious questions that we, I think, have to address
0: moving forward. Because it's now 2023. We don't know where the Women's World Cup host is going to be in 2027. Would actually be better for FIFA to have a long-term plan? It's not just, where's that World Cup going to be? About? How do we get to things like equal pay? And it's, in part, how can we make money out of the tournament? And where will it be?
3: 100%. I, th- I think the Women's World Cup would really, I think, benefit from that strategic long-term planning um, and uh, not being behind the eight ball. And, and you, as you know, 24 will vote for 27 and 25 will be 31. So it's catching up because before it was even tighter as we saw with Paris and as we saw with uh, Australia. So I I think, again, those same questions need to be asked. Is there a better way to uh, handle your number one asset uh, from a a revenue standpoint, but also is there a better way from a strategic and a corporate governance standpoint?
1: It's uh, two and a half years until the 2026 World Cup starts or or thereabouts, Um, but we still don't know where the final is. Is, is it right that you're getting you know, so close to the tournament and that a decision hasn't been made where the, 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 the main event is going to be?
3: It's two years, eight months, and 21 days, if you want to be exact. Um, but who's counting? Um, no, listen, I think, um, first and foremost, I mean, from a readiness standpoint, we, I don't think we need to really worry, uh, although there's always work to be done in terms of our venues and our stadium. It's not like we're building any stadiums here right? Uh, we got to build a stadium for a final. So, uh, you know, the process uh, is going along and our goal is to have that decision this year. Um,
2: And, um, you know, once they're announced, we'll be off to the races. Just back onto this, you mentioned FIFA 95% of its revenue, more or less, like a large amount of it. Um, Not to put you on the spot with your 95% uh, number, man. Is from, it's from the World Cup, so it's its biggest thing. It stops the world for an entire month. We all love it. Now, two weeks ago, a decision was made not for one World Cup, but two. 2030, with this um, three continents, with um, games in South America, in Europe, and Africa with Morocco. And then this uh, um, 2034, seismic decisions. We talked about it when we, we last spoke to each other, the, two, the three of us there's not a single there's not been a press conference or any chance for the public to to have a conversation about it the media it was just a press release something that big
3: uh, i was unaware there wasn't a press conference because uh, you know obviously uh, i think uh, our council meeting was on zoom i believe so um, yeah listen obviously uh, um, i'm here to answer any of your questions and i'm sure uh, you know if you're going to pose the same questions at fifa I'm, you know i don't think they've ever shied away from answering questions so from what, from what I'm aware of. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I think, listen, the, the reality of 34 is that, you know, I, I know everybody, you know, they've come out of the gate, whatever, but from a process standpoint, it's still not final, you know, in terms of even just going past the first post, it's not finalized till October 31st, I believe.
2: Yeah. But we're, we also have 2030, which is enormous, you know, like across these, these three continents, questions about, how it's going to be done logistically, the the environmental impact, um, all of it, we've not had a chance to talk to anyone about. it.
3: Not sure there's answers in a lot of those because I think that's a lot of the hard work that needs to be done. Uh, that you know the decision has been made in terms of, and by the way, you know the decision has been made where they are the only bidder. They haven't gotten the World Cup. Not you're saying ah oh, come on they're going to get it. Yeah, you're probably right, but they haven't been awarded. So Portugal, Spain, and Morocco. And the three games in South America have not been awarded the World Cup. What has been done is the decision was that they this would be the only bid for 2030 and that they would have to meet the standards that are required to put on the World Cup. And if, quite frankly, they don't meet the standards, obviously we have a situation. Now, do I think they're going to meet the standards? Yeah, I do. I don't think they won't because you're talking about, you know, I think Morocco will put a great foot forward. Spain and Portugal goes without saying. And having three games in those countries that, you know, uh, is a football, those are footballing nations. I don't foresee them not doing it. But I think from a process standpoint, nobody's been awarded 2030, and nobody's been uh, even officially announced from a process standpoint who the candidatures were. Now, FIFA was clear that only Oceania and Asia can bid for 34. Fine. So that limits in terms of where the bids are coming from.
1: I so think you, you approve of the sort of IOC approach. To um, where they basically the the executives select a, a preferred candidate for a tournament um, for the for the Olympic Games, is that what you're basically saying? You you think that it should be a sort of executive decision because that's it. effectively what it it feels like now. Is that there's only one bid been accepted for 2030, and it looks like there's only going to be one bid for 2034. Um, Because there was a big thing about this sort of letting the whole FIFA Congress vote in it, and I guess they have to approve the 2030 bid as well. But Is that what you're saying? You think that it should be sort of no more more bidding races, basically?
3: Yeah, I think not so much races, per se, but not the way we've done it. I mean, I I went through it. I experienced it for the 2026 World Cup. It's not fun, right? And it leads to, uh, like, unnecessary expenditures. I I think what we need to do is really rigorously look at the process, make it a lot more corporate with the right due diligence. And by the way, even though it's an executive decision um, in a smaller body for like the FIFA Council, no different than it is at the Congress, it needs to be transparent. Like it can't just be, yeah, yeah, we're picking so-and-so. It needs to be completely transparent why you're doing it, who did it, and ensuring that the standards have been met from a due diligence perspective, because an asset as big as the FIFA Men's World Cup, and quite frankly, what the Women's World Cup is now, which is a massive asset as well and growing, requires, I think, A, proper procedures, proper governance, and ensuring that it goes in the proper locations. And taking a long-term view on that, um, I think, is important. Now, I think we're a bit different than the IOC in that, you know, I think the IOC might be a little bit more challenging finding hosts because of the sheer nature of the, you know, how many events are going to go into the Olympics. Whereas with us, it's only one sport. You don't, you know, we don't need to build uh, infrastructure per se, like they have to, you know, you might have to build a stadium, but that's it. You're not building, you know, pools and whatever else. Right. So, um, so I think we're different in that way, but I think in terms of the principle of a long-term approach, I think, I think it's something we really need to look at.
0: We started the pod talking about a lot of the geopolitical issues that FIFA is having to confront and contend with. So we've had the Israel-Palestinian situation. How do you honor the dead? We've had the return of Russia initially from FIFA and also UEFA have U turned on their decision. Focusing on Russia, first of all, how has that decision reached and how problematic is it in terms of where Russia sits in football with this war with Ukraine going on so long and how long they're out for?
4: Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, sports and politics is always uh, an uncomfortable
3: mix. Um, I think, um, and this is no different uh, in terms of these are complicated situations. Uh, Obviously, UEFA took a decision, uh, brought it to the FIFA Council, which took a decision uh, and then had to obviously, uh, from my understanding is they're not going forward with it because once they've started looking at it really more deeply that it was going to be problematic, and, and I respect that. Um, you know, uh, it's great to say that, uh, you know, we don't want any politics in sports. a little harder to do, I think. And uh, unfortunately, um, you know, uh, being, the, being the global sport that we are, a lot of times, it may be unfairly at times or I always look to, to solve situations or, or be a bigger impact than I think we are, but it's the reality of, of our
4: sport and uh you know you guys know that because you cover the sport so you know the global nature of it
0: and we did have Gianni infantino writing to them in the media saying football could play a role in helping to solve the conflict so through fifa he sort of inserts fifa's role into that but then how do you avoid taking sides sometimes you do take sides like with ukraine where it was very much firmly speaking out against russia in favor of ukraine but then more nuanced when it's Israel who's been attacked by Hamas, but then Israel is obviously attacked back in terms of defending itself. And, and then civilians are lost on both sides in attacks.
3: Yeah, obviously, you know, we can play a role. We're, we're not going to be the peacekeepers. Um, obviously, you know, we, we have the entire international community heads of state flying into the region, um, speaking about Israel, actually Ukraine as well, in terms of trying to bring pre- peace to those areas. Um, and, um, you know, obviously it's a, not, not just an unfortunate situation. It's a ghastly situation with, uh, you know, in in the end, the humanity is suffering here, um, regardless of what side of the ledger that you, you may, you may take, but the, the human loss is shocking. And, um, and I think if football can even play a minute role, uh, in, in, you know, gravitating some sort of, uh, people that come together, great. Uh, but you know, the reality is it's, uh, a lot more complicated than what football is.
2: Bringing us back to, 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 the, to the World Cup, um, I'm just really interested in, in this tournament because it is just so enormous and, and, and popular. Now, about more than a third of the planet lives to the east of Qatar, the last host of the World Cup. That's a vast swath of Asia and then Oceania as well. How can it be that the next World Cup in Asia, and you guys have deemed it the sensible spot, is actually a neighbouring country to Qatar? It's almost culturally very, very similar. If FIFA's aim is to grow the game, why would you pretty much host the next World Cup in exactly the same place, almost, as the last one?
0: The next Men's World Cup in Asia, that is, 2034 after 2022.
3: Obviously, we'll see when the bids come forward here at the end of the month, and if if it is only one bid that's come forward, then that that bid needs to meet the standards, and that's where you're going to go with. Uh, I think the region you're talking about will be an interesting uh, area to host anything, because you're right. I mean, from a population standpoint, I mean, listen, I, I'm not sure that is always the measurement, or else we would
4: hope that India and China would co-bid so one day.
2: T- t- exactly, yeah. Qatar and Saudi Arabia. Yeah. It's an envelope, isn't it? I mean, it-
0: some people could say that about. European, Western European nations who get the tournament in close succession?
2: I would say there is a big difference between Spain and Germany, say, and Italy and, and the United Kingdom. And if you're listening, you can write in to into the usual places. But the idea that Qatar and Saudi Arabia are massively culturally different, I, I would argue, right? that's what I'm surprised by. That That would be the choice for, for FIFA, that we've had it in Qatar in Asia, and the next one is the neighbour Saudi Arabia.
4: But if that's the choice, it's the choice. Yeah. Uh, you know, as we had it's italian 1990, france 98
2: different culturally linguistically food
4: do you want me, are you going to ask me which one's better cuz i think
3: you know the answer to that one <laughs>
2: <laughs> but, but but in a serious point you know this is the global tournament and the idea that in asia you can you've gone from those two places considering all the other cultures and and, and locations that could host a tournament like this. i think it's a fair point i'm not i'm not
3: i don't know i'm not going to Dis- disagree with your point that it's a fair point it's in the, in the same region but but the reality is just because it's in the same region and just because culturally they're the same now i'm not saying that because i'm sure if i asked saudi and the Qatari that your culture is the same i'm not sure i would get that answer yeah right so i don't know that and but the reality is that doesn't disqualify saudi arabia from bidding for a world cup just because qatar had it in 2022 and by the way this this World Cup will be 12 years after the fact, so it's not the next one, and it's not the one after that because it's obviously in North America, then Europe, and then it needs to come back somewhere. So it, it shouldn't disqualify them just because Qatar hosted in 2022. I think your port is valid in the sense of that region is a vibrant region. We saw what Australia has done with the Women's World Cup. Uh, there's a huge football fans in that region, as we know. Um, but I think, it, but having said that. I think Saudi Arabia has every right to bid for the 34 World Cup, just like anybody else does in that region.
1: If you follow the uh, FIFA rotation rules, then 2038, it's, it's between CONCACAF and Oceania. So uh, you need to start getting your, your, your bid your bid work done uh, Victor. But um, I was actually going to say... Uh, 2027 World Cup, U.S. Mexico are going for that. If that's unsuccessful, do you anticipate they'll go for 2031? Um, because we've also heard that Saudi may go for the 2035 Women's World Cup.
3: That's news to me in terms of the U.S. Mexico bid. Yeah, they've they put in an intent to bid. Uh, we'll know at the end of the year. I think the deadline is the end of the year to actually submit your bid. Uh, I think they're probably, you know, as my two federations are probably going through their due diligence, both in terms of. The technical side of the bid and probably the political side of the bid, and you know, listen, there are countries that will not have any difficulty hosting the Women's World Cup from a venue from a st- infrastructure standpoint. So if they're uh, if they're going to go forward for for twenty seven uh, or not, uh, obviously they'll they'll decide. Uh, but I think they would definitely be ready to host for the next one uh, for sure because uh, I don't think uh, hosting it would be a challenge in terms of the infrastructure and then obviously you know, building on 26 uh, is is a huge platform for them as well from a bidding standpoint. So, yeah, if it's
4: not 27, then it, it definitely will be th- 31. And we've got through all this conversation
0: on mentioning VAR, which uh, <laughs> perhaps someone would be, actually want us to press you on, but perhaps it's a relief not to. <laughs> um, well, it's been great you could join us here. Uh, one final thought. So, really, inside FIFA, what do they think about everything we're doing, all the media are doing when we're asking questions of FIFA?
4: Listen, uh, you, you're asking Victor here now. So... You know, I can't speak for FIFA, uh,
3: although I think. Listen, uh, you know, it's a reality of our business, and I think uh, from our perspective, I think uh, with all due respect, uh, uh, our sport wouldn't be our sport if it wasn't for the players. It's all about the players. Let's be honest; they're not watch They're not watching me or you, you know, speak. All right. As much as hopefully we have many, many listeners on this podcast, <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, is that you know we're an industry, and I think we sometimes forget that. And our industry is important, and everybody in the industry is important—players, coaches, the technical side, but the people that take the tickets, the people that sell the hot dog, the people that govern the game, like like myself, but also the media. I think it's a massive, important, and I think it's also important for the media to be responsible, uh, in, in doing it the right way. Yes, asking the hard questions, but also, uh, uh, you know, um, but also reporting that in the right way. You know, um, you know, like any industry, you have the good, the bad, and the ugly. But, uh, you know, I think uh, overall, I think I I can't really, um, really say anything in terms of the media, uh, the mainstream media, doing the right thing. Obviously, you always have some people that are offside in terms of personalizing things and maybe being a bit slanderous in terms of how they say things. But listen, I think uh, for the most part, my experience with you lot has been fantastic. I have had absolutely no complaints about uh, how I'm treated and it's always been fair. And, um, you know, and I hope that, uh, you know, every time you've asked me something, I've been pretty clear and and transparent in in terms of my answers.
1: Perhaps we should rename the podcast The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Uh, I I volunteer to be the ugly.
4: Well, the Terror Cat is at first, actually. (laughs) So there's two uglies. So that leaves me and you, mate.
0: Yeah, we're there. Well, Victor, great you could join us here. Victor Montaliani, the CONCACAF president, FIFA vice president, joining us on Sport a Lot. Quite a few notable things happened on stage at Leaders in Sport. We had the FA Chief Executive Mark Bullingerm apologising for the hurt and distress caused the Jewish community over not lighting the arch in Israeli colours. We had A22, the Super League company, given a big presence on stage despite questions over just how valid any of their plans are at all. And what caught your eye?
2: Yeah, we also had Saudi, 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 but that didn't catch my eye. Uh, What caught my eye was, um, there was a session with Steve Parrish, the Crystal Palace co-owner and chairman, um, and specifically what he was saying about um, professional women's football and the women's game in in England, I suppose. Um, and, And we've talked about this idea that just mapping women's football onto men's football, which has been around for 100 years and just doing the same thing risks the same problems. And, and Parish said something really interesting. Martin, you were there as well, and he was talking about um, this risk of having just two or three teams right at the top um, spending huge amounts of money and creating a gulf and a lack of competitive balance. I think he said last season in the WSL there was a 160 goals difference for the top four teams, and that meant the rest were 160 goals down. Well, uh, Martin, do, you want to unpack a bit more of what he
1: said? Yeah, so I think he was pointing out the fact there's no there's no salary cap, there's no cost controls uh, in the Women's Super League, so you you basically have this the, the sort of complete free market, and then if you are a big club, it's quite easy to get good profile by spending spending a bit of money, um, and but you get this sort of you know the haves and have nots, very very stark divisions in women's football in this Women's Super League at the moment, and it's you know it's it, it's too predictable is the f- is what he the point he was making
2: at, at a time he said when they're trying to grow the game we're not it's not an established 30 40 year you know league with 50,000 fans every week they're trying to grow interest and if you're one of the have nots and your fans know you're going to lose 6 nil and you're trying to start this this competition it's going to be really hard
0: yeah and we also heard from a22's burnt Reichardt, who was bemoaning now the Champions League is without Wolfsburg and Arsenal because they've been knocked out and how almost advocating their Super League plan would be far better. Now, yes, Arsenal have been delivering big crowds at the Emirates Stadium in the Women's Champions League. Wolfsburg are a successful team and you'd really miss their fan bases in this current competition but it overlooks the achievement of Paris FC in knocking out both Arsenal, then w- Wolfsburg before the, the group stage. So supporting the achievements of a club that isn't at the very top in elite, and showing there is hope.
2: Just to speak up for Paris FC for a sec, having visited them last year, they are one of the biggest spenders in women's football, in, 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 um, in French women's football. Um, the men's team is, is in, in the second division. Uh, but but talking to the owner last year, he, he did have one of the the better budgets. Obviously, not a PSG Qatar fueled budget, but but you know they're building a good women's program there in at Paris FC, and um, and all power to them.
0: Yeah, that uh, challenge over encouraging investment, ensuring players are paid more well, ensuring still a competitive balance too. Well, that about brings an end to this week's episode of Sport and Lots. Obviously so much politics geopolitics to get into and how football deals with those situations as ever you can message us at sport on on x facebook instagram email sport on pod at gmail.com if you've got any thoughts but for now thank you for listening